Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talkhouse Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. Today we've got a great conversation between two incredibly smart and thoughtful people, Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards and Jen Wozner, aka Flock of Dimes, aka half of the band Y Oak. As you'll hear at the top of the chat, Garbus and Wozner are old friends who had actually been trying to find some time to connect when we approached them. I don't think either would mind if I referred to them as friends of Talkhouse. Each has written pieces for our website and each has been a guest on the podcast more than once. You'll see from this conversation why we keep asking them back. Garbus and Wozner released monumental records just a week apart this year. Tune Yard's fifth album, sixth if you count their score to Boots Riley's film Sorry to Bother You, is called Sketchy, and it's as puzzling and progressive as you've hopefully come to expect from the band. Garbus and bassist Nate Brenner are never content to rest on their past glories. They're always searching for new modes of thought and expression, and Garbus's lyrics meld the personal and political into a fiery concoction. Check out a little bit of the song Hold Yourself from Sketchy. Jen Wozner, as I mentioned, is best known for singing and playing guitar in Y Oak, and she's also released albums with Dungeness and solo style under the name Flock of Dimes, in addition to being a recent touring member of Bon Iver. It's her Flock of Dimes project that's garnering some incredible, well-deserved attention this year, including a huge feature in the New York Times. It makes sense, considering that the album she's promoting is so extraordinary. Head of Roses will be both familiar to her fans and unexpected, with new sounds, textures, and lyrical motivations. The story is that it's an album about heartbreak, but it's so much more. Check out the song One More Hour from Flock of Dimes' new Head of Roses album. When I was younger I was so sure Always suspicious Of an easy cure No, I'll never As I mentioned, these two are friends, and they jump right into a deep conversation that had me feeling both woefully underinformed and really energized. These two care deeply about their art, about the world, and about each other. Enjoy. Hi, hi, my friend. Hello, my friend. It's so nice to see your face. I mean, these days, a face, a familiar face is a special thing. Thank you for doing this with me. Oh my gosh, thank you for doing this with me. Thank Talkhouse for having us, We for setting us up with a conversation that we've been trying to have. We have truly been texting about trying to get on the phone to catch up for weeks. And we're, we've both released records in the past month. So it's not entirely surprising that we have not been able to make this happen. Yeah. But there is a silly irony to the fact that we, as actual friends, are, have only been able to speak to one another 
through the lens of uh, album promotion. World. Yeah. <laughs> How's your record release going? I did a little research. I read, it's really helpful to read what you say in interviews. I can't read what I say in interviews because mm -hmm. it's a whole thing, but you articulated something and I'm going to bastardize it. But how, you said basically like an album is like tracing yourself and then, but you're like, you walk, mm -hmm. <laughs> like chasing yourself in a moment and then you keep walking. And then this experience of being held to these songs that you wrote when. I'm just curious how you're feeling now. It's always been something that I've struggled with. I don't consider myself to be the kind of performer or public figure that is putting on a show or inhabiting a persona per se, like it really is very much about me and who I am and what I'm experiencing in my life. And obviously it's like impossible to feign authenticity, right? So if I'm not in a headspace, it's very hard to take myself back to the place that I was and make it sound genuine. I have this funny thing that happens with releasing records where I always forget that it's going to be challenging. I, I only think about the parts that are good and rewarding and I forget about the parts that are uh, excruciating and challenging and make you feel <laughs> too seen and too observed and 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 that, that sort of activates that self-judging voice in your head. And even if you're doing a good job, you know, it's still like, this isn't entirely relevant to who I am and where I am now at this moment. This is music that I made a year ago. So I think if you are genuinely being honest about how that feels, it's not 100% positive, <laughs> but there aren't many people that are open to hearing you actually admit that. Um, like it's something that's very difficult to talk about because it's sort of like a, an album release is seen as like a birthday or something that you're supposed to just celebrate. And it's hard for people to wrap their minds around the parts of it that might feel a little bit uncomfortable. Watching other people release music during the pandemic has felt really instructive in terms of my tendency to downplay my joy mm -hmm. <laughs> no longer feels acceptable to me and I would imagine to other people. For instance, there's a great amount of exposure for both of our records right now. And that is no small thing. The fact that people are listening to our words and our sounds, it is such a gift. I'm going through this, the like vulnerability hangover, I mm -hmm. guess. Of oh, yeah that I always forget about. That's what I forget about. Um, when you're talking about that, it sounds like how people describe giving birth where people are like, want to have kids again. They forget like the actual mm -hmm. pain of, <laughs> of it. But I forget about the odd feeling that suddenly, if you're lucky, thousands and thousands of people are listening to my voice right now, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is incredible. And how to reckon with that, how to t really take care of ourselves in that place so that it doesn't turn into a, a public wine. Does that make sense? This is actually something that I wanted to talk to you about. The work we do is very different, but there's some undercurrents of real deep thematic similarities, especially I think with these records, the records that we've made, which on the surface might seem so different from one another. We both seem to be sort of operating from this place of wanting to lead with our humanity in all of its flaws which there can be this friction with the self-promotion aspect of making and releasing art where people want to separate the world into like heroes and villains or like the perfect and the confident. And, and I'll admit that I spent a little bit of time dipping into your press as well because <laughs> you got to prepare. I, I felt like there were these times where I could see 
you're, it's very difficult to push back in a nuanced sort of way when someone leads with something like, oh, so you're an expert on X, Y, and Z, or, or for me, like, well, you got your heart broken and you made a record about healing and now you're healed, right? It makes sense. They want to condense it down into this very easily mm -hmm. communicatable idea. Mm -hmm. But I often find that a little bit dehumanizing. And I often find it a little bit reductive when really what I want to talk about in the art that I make is the sort of like nitty gritty, flawed, like the moments when you're failing. It's the journey of being a work in progress and not trying to present yourself as this superhuman. Yeah like larger than life thing. And so I feel like I struggle with that a lot. And I'm curious because so much of your work has to do with accountability, but also like self-forgiveness. And so much of that is like embracing one's own flaws and shortcomings. Do you feel like you have a hard time talking to people about that in ways that don't feel reductive? Sure. And so much of the pressures that journalists are under are the same capitalist pressures that everyone mm -hmm. is under. I stopped reading press partially because I would say like, I said that, or like, I didn't, I said that, but that's not what I meant. Or I just, or it's just wrong. <laughs> like right. facts are wrong. And you can read three different articles that say three like very different facts mm -hmm. um, that I live in Portland, Oregon. I don't live in Portland or, you know, whatever it is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's from the small to the big, but what's really helped me is getting older now that I'm, I, there's something about crossing the 40 line mm -hmm. where, and probably also doing spiritual practices, which we have talked about in various forms, but to be reminded that it's not about me which is hilarious because it's people asking me about me and yeah. me talking about me. But that especially, you know, I would say, sure, I call myself into question, especially around cultural appropriation, around racism. I call myself into question far more than other people call me to account. And then I've noticed that it gets turned the other way, as if the journalist is saying, I'm accusing you. Or people will say, how have you been called out for cultural appropriation? Yeah. I think mostly white journalists will ask that, like almost as if there's this fear, the white person fear of like, tell me what you got wrong. So I don't do that wrong. So I do everything right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have found that frustrating. And also, as I've heard you talk about feeling like, well, that's just what I deserve. Um, I am bad. I am a white person drawing from black culture and I need to atone for that. And anything that comes my way in terms of feeling bad or getting bad press for that is like my karma. And I think it's only been recently that I'm like, wait a second, everybody, whether it's about race or whether it's about human experience, it's not doing anyone any favors to paint ourselves as innocent or guilty. Maybe we had talked about Prentice Hemphill who writes about innocence and just how it's like, it's not useful. <laughs> it's a myth and it really doesn't serve us to be real with each other, to be honest and to heal. Yeah. I'm so happy to be talking to you about this right now specifically, because I feel like I've learned so much this year from you in our friendship. It was interesting because making this record almost exactly a year ago, I really felt that I was doing this very self-focused thing. And I wasn't necessarily expecting it to 
expand beyond myself and my own experience at all or teach me anything. And it wasn't until I had some distance and some perspective and I started kind of like feeling into myself a little bit more that I realized where some of the connections occurred and how that it could be about something bigger than myself. And I could learn something more than just about what my own personal experience. It felt serendipitous that a lot of the relationships in my life that I needed to guide me in those directions emerged at this really important time. Like you mentioned, like I use the line, I deserve it in my song and intentionally so. And I think it took me a minute and it took me some gentle guidance and some sort of pushes towards like Mm self-compassion to get out of that shame spiral that kind of just sends us back right into the same self-defeating and world-defeating patterns. I'm really grateful for that, but it's not a natural tendency. It requires a certain slowing down to even notice that the visceral gut reaction to having something pointed out to you that may be painful, whether you're talking about like a calling out from outside of you through someone else, or whether you're sort of having to do what I was trying to do, which is contend with some of the more painful truths about the way that I've behaved towards Mm -hmm. others in the past and hold that at the same time as, well, I don't think I'm like an evil person. I don't think I'm a bad person, but that right there isn't me at my highest self. And where did that come from? It took me a while to get my mind around the idea that punishing myself was unproductive. In addition to being like not compassionate, it was not leading me out of that pattern, that cycle. Right. Oh my God. So many things. But what I'm learning too is if we're calling for abolition and the dismantling of the punitive justice system in our collective. Yeah. I I never until it was, I'm getting goosebumps, but it never occurred to me that that was something that I needed to transform in myself in order for that not to be a thing that then you were talking about reading Adrienne Marie Brown's book, Emergent Strategy, and in that idea of, of fractals. Of, so I'm, I'm living in this little body of good and bad, innocent, guilty, and punishment, like real bo- like bodily punishment, over-exercising, under-eating, whatever things there are to cause myself pain. I've done those things if I'm a little f- fractal <laughs> and, yeah. and then, you know, just seeing how that can move outwards versus that really nitty gritty, very painful at times change and very, maybe not painful, but, but uncomfortable at the very least of this is new. What if I, I think I ate too much. And instead of going on a 10 mile jog, mm-hmm. <laughs> I sit with my feelings and ask myself what I need right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's just one little example. I would listen to the record before I read about what the record was about. And just for what it's worth, I think it's like the most valuable songs to me are songs that I can find myself in. I just really felt like there are these moments on the record where you can be talking about we and and now you know reading more about it I can assume that you're talking about a relationship with a specific person but I heard we like we collectively yeah and that's when I started like tearing up like it was a way that I it was whatever what you are saying resonates and I think that's the very best songwriting to me and and you're one of the very best songwriters I know your songs are real I mean oh 
from like from a nerdy chord structure point of view and (laughs) the graceful openness of your lyrics. That to me is why people like, why songs get popular because many people can find themselves in them. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that because you are one of my true heroes in this business and that is no joke. So (laughs) I'm not even sure how to process such a kind compliment. Woman. But moving forward through the compliments, which are obviously very uncomfortable <laughs> too. I, I haven't reached the being able to accept compliments part of my okay, let's, journey Let's now. take a moment. Thank you, Jen Wasner. I really appreciate your words. That means a lot to me. I really appreciate your work so much. I think your work is, is beautiful and important. Thank you. I'm really happy you brought up the fractals because that was one of my favorite. I have not finished Emergent Strategy yet, but that was one of my favorite parts in it. I was reading it sort of... Uh, right at the beginning of starting to make sense of how this very highly specific emotional experience that I was having could apply and in fact did apply to the collective in this way that I hadn't anticipated. At first I was like, oh, this is just like a miraculous coincidence, but it's clearly not a coincidence, right? And that's like part of what I love about the framework of songwriting is that we learn about each other and we learn about the world through learning about ourselves. Mm. And the deeper we go, inside of ourselves and the better we understand ourselves the more we understand how we all can function independently and together there were some things that clicked when i observed how my body innately responded to some of these more painful and unpleasant truths that i was trying to contend with about myself my life my behavior and my pain Mm. i really sat with how hard that was even with the intention that i had to sort of override it and supersede it So it's so much easier for me to have compassion for what I think of as so many of the cultural manifestations of that trauma response, how we are all so traumatized collectively and socially from living in the culture that we live in that is just completely awash with white supremacy and capitalism that basically only thrives through the exploitation of majority of people. And it's impossible to not be traumatized by living in the world and being awake to what is happening. So I felt like there was always this inability to understand. And I I see it articulated all the time too. I see people constantly being like, how could they think this? How could they do this? How could you not care? And when you start to understand it as a sort of trauma response of like, of the avoidance of the painful truth that is causing you pain, like Mm -hmm. I'll tell myself any story I need to tell to avoid sitting with this thing that is profoundly uncomfortable. Yeah. And so I got to this point where I was like, maybe the work that I'm doing with myself in learning to sit with these uncomfortable emotions also has a purpose in learning how to sit with some of the more uncomfortable emotions that arise in contending with my place in systems of harm and systems of oppression. Hearing you say that, it really makes sense. We both have shared Resma Menicum's work in my grandmother's hands and the idea that Settling our nervous systems Mm -hmm. is crucial in anti-racist practice for white people specifically, Mm -hmm. for everybody, but for white people specifically. So hearing you say that, I'm like, of course, your practices to deal with settling your nervous system, there's no other place to start. So knowing what those practices are, are only going to be helpful in any situation. It also makes me think though about how whiteness maybe works in 
ding. <laughs> it's like, oh, what, what women, what women being like, oh, oh, another way that I see whiteness working. But what I understand about whiteness is that one of, or one of the tenets of white supremacy culture is individualism. And I think a lot of my experience of taking in music from white songwriters has been that I get frustrated with the limited scope. When I started Two Years, I was like, I'm really tired of hearing love songs. I was listening to Radiohead because I was like, I think they're talking about the end of the world. And that's what I need songs about yeah. <laughs> is, is a window. Like, how does my personal experience, how does what's living in my body, can I expand it to see that I have an effect on other people in my world? There's that Bell Hooks book, I think it's called All About Love or something. I have it right here. <laughs> oh my <laughs> this God. is not orchestrated or planned. I just happen to have this book right <laughs> But she's talking about like, actually, it's like, actually, it's really hard to love that it's just kind yeah. of assumed that we know what that is. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of this last two years record was about, was really trying to get into the details about what love looks like mm -hmm. and then as white people as we are waking up however awkwardly into oh I'm it doesn't there is no such thing as a good white person that is not the point my job is not to look really perfect and right and get it all right and that I've been living in a real isolation without feeling that my behavior is contributing to murder to the worst kinds of violence in our society that maybe like, you know, th these ways that we can connect, okay, here's my personal experience. And then how am I affecting the world around me? And to get really real and wake up to the ways that we're wired into the system and then how we unplug from the stuff that doesn't align with our values as the good people that I know we are. It doesn't matter if you're a good person, if you're plugged into systems of harm. Being on autopilot in that way is a very difficult thing to wake up from. And it requires contending first with the fact that it's been happening, which if you are doing that in a way where self-compassion and self-forgiveness doesn't enter into the picture, mm. it's not sustainable. And I think it actually pushes a lot of white people out of the work because oh, it just overrides that part of our brain that we want to protect ourselves from feeling the shame and the guilt. And in order to do it sustainably, you have to accept the discomfort of contending with your role in it and accept the discomfort of accepting you're going to make mistakes, that you're going to be imperfect. But the fear of having the conversation is part of what's helping to uphold the entire system. Yeah. And I haven't read, again, to like drop another Adrian Marie Brown reference, but I haven't read Pleasure Activism yet, but I have heard her speak about it a bit. And the idea behind that of being like, we have to make these things feel good in our bodies so that we will keep coming back to them. Yeah. And I am interested too in hearing more about the way that you talk about your record being about learning how to love, because I do feel like so much of being able to love another person hinges upon the ability to truly love and accept oneself, which for me, I, I think obviously this record is like much more clearly and like on the surface is much more like a record about love and heartbreak, but it does go a bit deeper than that for me. I, even if I didn't necessarily realize that it did at the time, because in unpacking a lot of that stuff, I realized how far away that I actually was, how I had been sort of using love of the other 
as a substitute for love of the self or as a means of subverting the need to accept myself by by getting that external validation from someone else. Mm-hmm. I obviously make a kind of personal autobiographical kind of art. And I used to feel a little bit ashamed about that in that I thought there was this separation between the political and the realm of the personal. And now, and everything that I've come to learn through all the work that we've both done this year together and separately, I'm beginning to see the ways in which it's all connected. Mm-hmm. And that the transforming of the self is just a small fraction of how we can actually realistically transform the world and transform our relationship to each other. White people have for a very, very, very long time not had their very existence need to be political. For the time that we have grown up in this industry, there's been a lot of apolitical white people music. Apolitical, yeah. You yeah. said it way better than I could. That that it Right, that it all is political. Can I ask you a question? Of course, yeah. A couple of things that I find really interesting about your record. And one is, I the walking is the song. That's the, my one right now. Mm. It's so beautiful. Thank you. I think that was the one where I felt the we was a collective we. Like that's, I just interpreted it that way. And it felt so moving and sad. I wanted to ask you about longing because in that song, you kind of land into this familiarity of longing and you're kind of like, you know, I'm alone. I got work, like kind of like I'm busy. I'm cool. (laughs) Here I am again in a place that I'm very comfortable in. And I have to admit that I was like, (laughs) there was, there was like my old single self of, but not just that it's like this, the, the loneliness of the artist loneliness, maybe? I don't know. So I guess one of my questions is, do you keep longing as this like art carrot? (laughs) Uh, Do you feel, because I've really grappled with that, like how sad do I need to be? Or how sad am I before it starts becoming a drawback to my creative process? And then also this idea of this being a trace of yourself in a specific moment. Do you feel like the writing of this music has been part of a transformation that is still continuing that has brought you to a different place. I, this is, this is like my dream come true. I love this so much. Um, This is a wonderful question. This is something that I'm still very much trying to figure out because there's this friction between these two truths for me as a person who creates things or, or lives in the imagination or likes to tell stories there's a very easy in to that process through the intense emotion that comes with whether it's attraction to another or curiosity about another or connection to another. It can be like a real spark. I would like to think that I've made some amount of progress in being satisfied with less and contending with another thing that I think is true, which is that like the constant yearning and longing for more is essentially the cause of all suffering, really. Like the inability to truly see and appreciate and sit with the things that you have, the people that you have, the beauty that's right in front of you, uh, because you're so caught up in this spinning wheel of what's out there, what's next, what can I get, what can I have, what's more. So it's honestly not something that I feel like I've really figured out yet. I do think that as human beings, we are sort of built to be perpetually unsatisfied on some level or to treasure or value the things that we can't 
have or to place this glimmer of beauty and specialness on things that we don't actually see in our immediate vicinity. Not only do I have that tendency naturally, but I really work it out on the regular because I write songs and then people are like, good job writing songs. And so I'm like, yeah, I should do that more, you know? But then as a human being who wants to understand what it's like to feel satisfied and happy and at peace, at least some of the time, you have to really actively push back against that impulse because there's no end to it. If you are on this path of just like constant consumption and, and constant longing for and craving for more and more, and that's sort of the same premise that capitalism is built upon and it's exhausting the finite resources of a world as if they were infinite. I've actually been trying to push back against that and I'm not entirely sure how that will affect what the creative process feels like for me or how it plays out in my life. But I'd like to think that it's possible to have both somehow. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Side note, I've been watching YouTube videos of a farm family in Azerbaijan. It's labeled ASMR videos, which is my current obsession. I have no idea how those people feel on their farm, but there's so much work to do. And it is all very contained, meaning like there are tomatoes and they must get harvested and they get put in a big metal pot and cook down into tomato paste. And then the tomato paste gets eaten. We don't need to talk about what happens next. But, you know, like (laughs) there's a a really contained cycle. And I've just been questioning, maybe we'll get to this, but especially getting to that philosophical idea of touring. I think the last time we, I saw you in physical form was here in the Bay Area playing on stage with Bonnie Bear and thinking about how I've probably only seen you on tour. (laughs) Like we've just been always in motion and that's how I see most people in my life normally. But what's that balance? Yes, in the creative process, because I think there's always, I, I feel that too, there's always some kind of itch that I need to scratch that keeps me going creatively. Otherwise, what's the point? I could keep doing the same thing over and over again. And that feels maddening. But what is that balance of enough? What's enough? And is enough a scaled down version of touring or is enough still touring, but doing it in a way that it feels, I I don't know, and not even having to do with touring, but just the the go, go, go of life. Mm -hmm. How do we reckon with what we need to sacrifice for this What are the things that we need to sacrifice and and give up in this next era of life on the planet? What will we be willing to give up because of the emergency of climate change and the emergency of all these things Mm -hmm. versus where are we like, actually, my body really does better in motion. So I'm going to make that work. Or maybe I need to feel stressed out (laughs) in order to meet a deadline, but After that deadline's met, I'm going to like have a week where I take baths every day. I've been working a lot in therapy on, apparently I didn't even realize I was doing it, but extreme binary thinking, it's got to be this or that. And I don't think there's any way to know Hmm. how this is going to play out in regards to our livelihood. It's very hard to imagine my life without touring in it in some capacity, but I'd be lying if I said I didn't think that the rate at which it happens is... It's unsustainable. You know, I think we're all going to have to make some really difficult choices about how it unfolds from here on out. But at the same time, I also think that it's important that people are exposed to 
the ideas that you are writing about and singing about in your music and also exposed to them in the specific way that you are exposing them to them. There's something about music specifically that can sometimes subvert our natural um, defenses and reactions to certain painful truths. And I think that your music is so substantive, is there's so much wisdom in it and there's so much pain in it. And there's a lot of really heavy content there, but it is delivered in such a way that it's easy to receive. I think it's actually easier to receive in a lot of ways because it's using the sort of like somatic force of music and sound to deliver it in a way that is somehow more palatable. I'm sure it's something you're aware of, but do you think of it as like a tool in your toolkit? I guess the real question being like, to what extent do you feel as though the content that you're writing about substantively and sound work together? And how do you make some of those decisions? Yeah, well, and ditto, <laughs> lady, because we are both producers, which I just always need to hear myself say. Yeah. Women don't say it a lot. We've both produced records for ourselves and for other people. But my experience of sound has always been one of healing. And I've at times thought about studying more about sound, like being a sound healer. And then I was like, I think I'm probably just doing that. <laughs> you might already be a sound healer, Meryl. I hate to tell you, I think you might be. <laughs> like maybe just knowing that songs and people coming together in song is healing. I just know that to be true. So for me, when we're producing the songs, it really feels like I know when those moments come, when I feel bathed in sound. And I hear that a lot in your music and we're going to run out of time, but I really want to hear about the production. I knew this was not going to be enough. <laughs> like on the end of Hold Yourself, that song, I've when Nate, he... Oh, his bass line. And I was like, you know, just like, okay, here's... And and with the vocals in there, it just felt like, okay, this is that moment where I'm getting the wave of being held here and that that there's enough room for all of the feelings that you're right will not be reduced in that space. There's no reduction of my feelings. They're allowed to be as expansive as they are mm -hmm. and there's space there for them. I work with my life partner. When you work on the production of these songs, what's your relationship to that? Like knowing when it's right or are you also trusting other ears in the room? I have tend to be a little bit more iron fisted about it because I have a lot of very specific ideas about the way I want things to be, but I've been trying really hard to open myself more to collaboration because I think that creating space between the ideas that I was holding onto very tightly and the happy accidents that I couldn't possibly have predicted that can really only come through exposure to an outside source, whether it's someone else or another idea, another piece of equipment or whatever it is. But I don't know, I'm really sensitive weirdo. I can't work with just anybody because uh, I'm insecure and vulnerable. And in many ways, being in the studio is where I feel the most at home, but it's also where I feel the most like unprotected in some ways. I made this record with Nick, who you also know well and are friends with, with Nick Sanborn. I don't think I could have done it with uh, just anyone, you know? I mean, Nick's got the skill set, but it's beyond just the musical skill set. It's being able to share space with someone that I feel like I can be 
my full self in front of. I can be a little bit of a mess in front of that I can throw a fit if I have to, where I'm not just being the sort of optimized, glossed over version of myself. I think a lot of my collaborations, like for example, in Wyoke, which is one other person who I've known for 20 years. (laughs) And like, I can be a shitty little bitch in front of Andy if I have to be, Mm -hmm. because sometimes the creative process reduces us to that, you know? But yeah, I don't know. Production wise, like I... I tend to write and produce at the same time. Like a lot of the writing process and the recording process is happening simultaneously and I'm layering things on top of each other. And it's not necessarily just me sitting down with an instrument and playing, although it can be. I have very strong ideas about how things need to sound and feel. And I found it important that I surround myself with people that I feel as though, as like a chronic recovering people pleaser that like I feel like I can say no to which sounds right. like it would be easy but it's actually pretty hard for me sometimes uh, for the people pleasers in the room yeah oh I'll never forget the first time you told me the uh, uh fight flight freeze or appease. appease and I was like oh no oh no, <laughs> oh, no. I'm, I'm living my life <laughs> in my limbic brain that really hit me hard where I was Oh, shit. I know. Me too. Yeah. It kind of crushed my soul and then gave me a lot of room to, for speaking of self-compassion. Is there anything that you want to wrap up with? I just want to say that it is just beyond an honor to not only be your friend, but also just to have your music and your work and your art in my life. I've learned so much from it and it keeps me good company. And it's also just a fuck ton of fun. So... (laughs) It's a pleasure. I don't know how you do it. It's miraculous. Sister, I feel the same. I just, it's not, it's not many other women that I know in this business who work so hard to get it exactly the way that you want it. Well, maybe one day we'll get to make a record together. I hope so. Yeah, everyone put that out in the universe. Thanks for asking me to do this and thanks to Talk House. Thanks for having us. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Meryl Garbus and Jen Wagner for chatting. Please check out their new records. They're amazing. If you liked what you heard, please follow Talk House wherever you find your podcasts. This week's episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the Talk House theme was composed and performed by The Rain. See you next week.